there. Welcome to LiveWire. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. We have a fun and fascinating show for you this week. First up, comedian, writer, and actor Paul F. Tompkins. He's appeared on over 200 episodes of the show Comedy Bang Bang. He was on Mr. Show. And Paul is a really incredible improviser, but he does have one Achilles heel when it comes to improv. He's going to tell us about that. Then we're going to talk to award-winning poet-turned-memoirist Sophia Sinclair. Her new book is How to Say Babylon. In it, Sophia recounts her life growing up in Jamaica in the Rastafarian movement under a very strict father. Then we are going to jump from Jamaica to Hawaii, which is where singer Isabo Vaya'u Walker hails from. Before she was a musician, she was a teacher, so she knows how to command a room. Livewire gets started right after this. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Live Wire is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving or cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. How's it going? It's going well. We've got a tough one for you this week on station location identification examination. Are you up to it? I'll try my best. (laughs) I know it was like kind of an intense opening to Livewire this week. Of course, this is where I quiz Elena on a place in the country where we're on the radio. You got to figure out where I am talking about. Uh, This place is located, I'm going to give you the state, on Minnesota's first birding trail, which is the Pine to Prairie birding trail and it's home to the Agassiz National Wildlife Refuge. I know that you write for Audubon Magazine at times. Maybe you know this through birds. Is it somewhere in the Minneapolis area? It is the birthplace of professional basketball player Mel Peterson. So does that narrow it down for you? (laughs) Also, the first time learning there was a professional basketball player named Mel Peterson. Uh, Is it Peterson Falls, Minnesota? (laughs) It has falls in it. It is Thief River Falls, Minnesota, where we're on the radio on KNTN. So shout out to all of our folks out there in Thief River Falls, Minnesota. All right. Ready to get to the show? Let's do it. All right. Take it away. From PRX, it's... This week, comedian Paul F. Tompkins... I wear overalls at home. I'm barefoot. <laughs> so just sitting there with on the porch with my jug and, you know, just waiting for the sun to go down. 
and poet and author Sophia Sinclair. The Rastafari language is very much rooted in anti-colonial thought. The idea is to uproot anything to do with the English language. With music from Isabeau Vaya'u Walker and our fabulous house band. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello, and now, the host of Livewire, Luke Burbank! Hey, thank you so much, Elena Passarello. Thanks to everyone tuning in all over America, including Thief River Falls, Minnesota. We have a really fun and kind of varied show for you this week. All kinds of stuff to discuss. Of course, we have a listener question we put out there. We asked, what is the most unhinged thing a neighbor has ever done. I will tell you, Elena, that this is reportedly the biggest reaction we've ever gotten to an audience (laughs) question. (laughs) Turns out a lot of people have a lot of unhinged neighbors. We're going to hear those responses coming up. First, though, of course, we got to kick things off with the best news we heard all week. This is our little reminder at the top of the show that there is some good news happening out there in the world. Elena, what is the best news you've heard all week? I'm just going to say right now, I don't think you're ready for this story. I don't think you're ready. This is the bootylicious of stories. All right. We start off on October 16th, not too long ago, at the Nebraska Humane Society, where somebody brought in three very young four-week-old kittens, one of whom was not doing well at all. It had this thing called flea anemia. When kitties are really young and fragile, the blood that fleas take out of the kittens can really affect them. And so they had to do something stat. And it turned out there was a six-year-old husky who was also in the Humane Society and he had just had blood work done. And so they could tell without having to waste any time that he would be a match. So they did a kind of really, it's not a permanent fix, but they did a quick transfusion to to just give the kitty a little more time. From a dog to the cat. From a dog uh, to the cat. It worked. Kitten was reunited with her siblings and is now in foster. Oh, but the story does not stop there because this six-year-old husky with one blue eye and one brown eye is named Brett Michaels. <laughs> like the singer from Poison? Like the singer from Poison. I believe he's from Mechanicsburg, PA, originally. So they posted the story about this amazing hero dog, Brett Michaels, on the Nebraska Humane Society's Facebook page. And somehow that got back to human Brett Michaels. <laughs> Weeks before. Just two weeks before, Brett Michaels had posted that he had just lost his beloved best friend, German Shepherd, Phoenix. And so, you know what's going to happen now. Human Brett Michaels adopted dog Brett Michaels. Every rose has its happy ending. Every rose has its humane society love connection. They found they drove that dog to L.A. or Vegas or wherever he is. This took place over two weeks. There was just this six-year-old dog in the humane society minding his own business. And then, before you know it, he is living in a mansion with the lead singer of Poison. He saves an adorable kitten's life. By the way, they named the kitten Rose and Thorn, which I thought was a little bit of a stretch. That's a mouthful. I would have named the kitten Unskinny Bop and called it Lil Bop or something like that. But anyway... So now on Brett Michaels' Instagram, you can see photos of little Brett Michaels, which is what they call the dog. (laughs) Everything about this is making me so happy. And now I feel like if you have a dog that you really love and you want to get adopted or a cat or anything, just name it 
after a nice seeming celebrity. That's how I got my parrot, Sir Mix a lot. <laughs> I got to tell you, my best news story also involves a pet, but a pet that's very low maintenance. You know, dogs and cats are, are, are lovely, but they can, you know, take some taken care of. What if you were somebody that maybe didn't have the ability to take care of a pet, but you still wanted that companionship? Well, that is where the Eugene, Oregon Public Library comes in, Elena. I got this story by way of our friends at KLCC uh, Radio in Eugene, which is a, a fine uh, station that carries this very program. The Eugene Public Library has a library of things. So during the pandemic, they started stocking not just books and media, but like ukuleles, something called tongue drums. Um, but they just have this library of things now. And one of the things they decided to add was a basically robot cat. So this is a very fluffy robot cat that is pretty realistic, actually. They got three of them, and you can check them out from the library of things at the Eugene Public Library. Their names are Bandit. Mr. Pickles and Percival, those names were picked by the staff. And they say these are great for folks that are maybe feeling a little bit lonely or people that are dealing with maybe memory issues. Like it's really great to have this thing that sits on your lap and purrs when you pet it. It purrs and vibrates just like a, a, a real cat would, but of course you don't have to worry about feeding it and, and taking care of it. These cats are checked out now like for weeks and weeks, they're so popular, like one of the most popular things at the Library of Things, so popular that the librarians got their own robot cats <laughs> that they keep in a break room at the Eugene Public Library, and they go in when they're feeling stressed out and sit with one of their robot cats on their lap. To deal with the demand of the other the robot, robot cats. <laughs> the fact that people are like banging down the doors of the Library of Things trying to get these cats. If you name a rescue husky Brett Michaels, maybe you should name like a robot cat like Devo or something. <laughs> like you should give it, try to think what the musician equivalent is. To Whatever musician you're together. hoping will adopt this particular <laughs> robot cat. But anyway, shout out to the Eugene Public Library and their Library of Things. Bandit, Mr. Pickles and Percival. That's the best news that I heard all week. All right, let's invite our first guest on over this week. He's appeared on over 200 episodes of the show Comedy Bang Bang. He's been on TV on Mr. Show on HBO, and also he's the voice of Mr. Peanut Butter on the Netflix animated series BoJack Horseman. But perhaps his most impressive achievement of all time is that he is now making his fifth appearance on Livewire, which has got to be some kind of record. I don't know if we got him a special blazer for this or not, but we are very appreciative of Paul F. Tompkins, who joined us on stage at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon recently. Take a listen. Hi. Hi. Mr. F. Tompkins. Yes, hello. Um, did you recently have a birthday? Yes, I did. As recently as Tuesday. Oh, oh that's Virgo, right. baby. Law and order ripped from the headlines. Mm -hmm. I had a birthday this week. <laughs> ripped from your wife's Instagram page, that's which right. I uh, follow. And there was a picture of you All with right, a cake. We'll talk about that later. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's a picture of you with a cake. And then the music is, I believe, Wagon Wheel by Old Crow Medicine Show. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> Which I just didn't see you as a wagon wheel kind of guy. Here's the thing. And I will say this to my dying day. My wife and I 
had, when we got married, we had Wagon Wheel as our recessional song. Hell yeah. Before it became a thing, a blight on society, <laughs> where it's just all over the place. I, I'm surprised. I, I also love that song, but I guess because you're so dapper and you kind of have the bearing of a, of a, of a gentleman from a different time, I would assume that you just listen to, like, the music that's playing in the bar during The Shining. <laughs> like, wah, 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 wah. like, just, you know, whatever, oh, great, whatever Grady is listening to as he's fixing up the drinks. I mean, I don't hate that, but <laughs> I wear overalls at home. I'm barefoot. <laughs> so just sitting there with, on the porch with my jug and, you know, just waiting for the sun to go down. Now, the thing that's interesting about your career, Paul, is that you... Please tell me. ...have always... <laughs> I can't believe I'm finally going to find out. <laughs> this is exciting. Is that uh, you have always done so much stuff outside of your television work. You've always done stage shows and podcasts and all kinds of things where you're diversified in a way, right? Now, I'm curious how you avoided the urge to sort of settle into... You know, you're on a sitcom, you drive to the lot, you work, you come home, you have a cocktail, you rinse, repeat the next day. I feel like a lot of people, because you've had a lot of success in entertainment. Um, how, how have you stayed so kind of diversified with the different things that you're doing? Well, because no one wants me to do that sitcom job you ah, mentioned. I see. And so... Patton Oswalt got that King of Queens yeah, gig, and that was the yeah. last time. It's like, they no, gave more, a good no comedian. more comedians. Uh, <laughs> you would take that job if it came to you? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. I did a, a multicam sitcom in 2000. It was a show called Dag. It starred David Allen Greer and oh, Delta sure. Burke. Wow. Um, yeah, and it, was, it ran for one season. It was one of the best jobs I've ever had. Ugh. Multicam sitcoms are like, it's like you're doing a little play, and you rehearse all week, and then on Friday night, you put it in front of an audience, and it's fun. It's really fun. <laughs> and I, I would absolutely love to have that life, and, and I would jump at the chance. Would you I don't still? Care how bad it is. Really? Yeah. And you must have friends that do show up on sitcoms that mm -hmm. you, all of you, as comedy people with a pretty high quote unquote comedy IQ, whatever yeah. that would mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, we're like, this isn't maybe the comedy that is for us, but are you all just like, rooting for your friends? Like, is there some unspoken thing about, like, no one make fun of how bad a certain show might be that somebody's on because they are making a living? Absolutely. And it is, like, it's also when you get to a certain age, you realize, oh, we don't have to watch each other's stuff. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, good, good for you. I'm very happy for you. You don't expect me to watch this, right? And they're like, absolutely not. <laughs> um, and, but another thing is that I grew up in a generation that was... Uh, very afraid of selling out. Mm -hmm. Like the idea of selling out was, it was the worst thing you could do. <laughs> and then when you kind of get older and you see the world, it's like, I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. I think that was a really big Gen X thing. Yeah, it was. I think, yeah. It really was. I think we were the first and last generation that, saw, that thought selling yeah. out was bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is financially a terrible thing for your generation terrible. to yeah. focus on. That's why nobody talks about it. Yes! Because <laughs> I, I remember going from seeing a friend of mine in a commercial and being very snobby about it to then years later seeing a, another friend in a commercial and being like, oh man, good for you. Like I'm friends with Flo from Progressive oh, Ads. Yeah. And every time those commercials come on, I'm like, man, good for you, Stephanie. <laughs> Not to you're, mention. I hope you're a billionaire. 
uh, and those commercials are actually very well written. So that's sort of the perfect thing. If you can be in a campaign like that, yes. and they're funny. You can have some fun. Mm -hmm. I will say, I'm not a fan of the expanded progressive universe. Yeah. <laughs> I like when the commercials are about flow. These other people coming in, they're fine. You know what I mean? But it's like, when a commercial is going to focus on Jamie? No. No. Jamie's there to support Flo. This is Livewire Radio from PRX. We're talking to... Um, Controversial take. We're talking to noted advertising critic, Paul F. Tompkins. Um, he's from the shows uh, The Neighborhood Listen and Variatopia and many other places. We need to take a quick break. Don't go anywhere. We will be right back. Welcome back to Livewire Radio from PRX. We are here with the great Paul F. Tompkins. Great. So your show, uh, The Neighborhood Listen, is coming back yes. this fall. Um, can you try to, I've, I've really enjoyed it. Can you explain for people that haven't heard of it what, how exactly it works? Absolutely. It is a, um, a character improv podcast uh, hosted by myself and Nicole Parker as two people who live, two friends who live in this fictional town called Dignity Falls, <laughs> and... <laughs> what, what we do is we take posts from next door, <laughs> and we have guests be the people from the posts, and then we talk about what their problem is and why they're upset and all that, and it's... It's so much fun. We laugh all the way through it. Um, it's it's a ball, and we're we're coming back for a fifth season. And I know that you you did this this great uh, kind of live video version of it that I was watching the other day, where you're <laughs> like a pharmacist. Yeah. she's a real estate agent, I believe. That's right. And I was watching it. I was cracking up, and I was. I mean, you've sort of answered the question when you're doing this and, and other improv things that you do. Is it challenging to not laugh? Or are you so, what's the name of your character, Burnt Millipede? <laughs> it's spelled Millipede, but it's pronounced Mia Payday. So, are you so deep in the world of Burnt Mia Payday that what the ridiculous <laughs> you're saying doesn't sound funny in your own head because you're like in the character? Or are you, are you laughing no, along we, with it? No, we laugh <laughs> all throughout the podcast. <laughs> we make each other laugh a lot, and the guests make us laugh, and we don't, I don't know, it there was like a shift in improv where you were not allowed to laugh before. Right. You were not allowed to laugh. And then when podcasts came along, I, 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 I feel like I was, if I may, I feel like I was a pioneer in <laughs> off-mic laughter in <laughs> podcasting. And I, now I hear it more and more where it's like, yeah, we're all sitting around, it's having fun. And it's like, it, it's, you're not trying to create a laugh track, but it is kind of fun to hear that. Like when I listen to a show mm -hmm. yeah. and the people are having fun with each other, I like it. It's really enjoyable. And yeah. it does, it also feeds that parasocial thing that we have with podcasts yeah. in a good way, I think. We had your friend Scott Ackerman <laughs> of Comedy Bang Bang and oh, Between work, work Two friend, Ferns. Work friend. <laughs> uh, and, and we were talking about you a little bit. 
And I, I was so surprised to hear that, if I have this right, you had not done improv until you, until you started doing stuff on Comedy Bang Bang? That's correct, yeah. Which is fairly recent. Like, I thought you were one of those Second City people, and you'd just been, like, yes-anding your way through, no. through life. That is amazing to me how talented you are at improv for someone who got into it relatively late. My, my school of improv was podcasting, because I had never done characters before Comedy Bang Bang. And so I knew the basic rules of improv and so I would try to stick to that and just like take whatever's thrown at me and then eventually after a few years of doing improv on podcasts I got on stage to do it for the first time with some people and I did not totally embarrass myself and I was like okay well I'm going to keep doing this I'm going to keep throwing myself in the deep end then I started an improv podcast so that I would be you know I would have uh, three other improvisers with me, and I would always be the least experienced. I'd always be the, the weak link. And so... Is this Spontaneation? Spontaneation, yeah. And the idea was, like, they would bring up my game, um, and so that even if I sucked, there were three other people that were great. So it wouldn't be bad for that long, you know, if I, were, <laughs> if I was messing it up. Somebody else would fix it, you know. And that's how I learned. And I still... There's still things, though, that... <laughs> My, my biggest downfall is something that is called object work. And that is where uh, if you're in a scene and somebody establishes there's a little end table here with a glass on it and somebody knows exactly where that table begins and ends so they can go up to it and pick up the glass, put it back down the exact same level where they picked it up from, and I can't do that at all. <laughs> I'm, I'm terrible at it. I get scared whenever it enters the scene. When somebody's like, okay, we're going to try to crack this safe or whatever. I'm like, ah, okay. <laughs> well, I'll, let you, I'll be the lookout. I'll let you guys. Nobody bump this Fabergé egg <laughs> yeah. that exists yeah, yeah, yeah. at an incredibly specific height. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, speaking of, of, of some of your improv projects, can you explain? I did not actually get to enjoy this, but I saw you talking about it online when Superego mm -hmm. tackled James Joyce's <laughs> Ulysses. That sounds like a laugh riot. It, okay, so I'm in a, I'm in a group called Superego, uh, which is uh, there's four of us uh, and then five when we do this specific show. Um, it, you know, it's an improv podcast, and we would do live shows. And then we started doing this thing a handful of years ago called Forgotten Classics, <laughs> where we would take a book that none of us had read, like a, a, a famous book that none of us had read. We would get the first line, the last line, <laughs> and the, uh, the character names, and then we would just improvise the story, <laughs> like what, what we thought it was or what it could be or whatever. <laughs> And we've, we did a handful of them. It was always really, really fun. And then we hadn't done it in a while, and a spot opened up at this great theater called Dynasty Typewriter in Los Angeles. Um, and I immediately, they asked me, hey, do you, you know, the theater asked me, we have a slot open. Is there any show you want to throw together? And I said, let me talk to the guys. And everybody was free, so we're like, let's do it. Try to come up with a book. And then we finally settled on Ulysses, which none of us had read. Half of us had attempted to read and mm -hmm. stopped. Um, and one of the most wonderful things was when we began the show, asking if anyone in the audience had read it, and not a single person. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Don't lie. Has anyone in this audience finished Ulysses? Yeah. Mm. Figures. Really? 
<laughs> it's okay. You don't have to say that here. Were there any amazing plot lines that emerged? I mean, I know it's kind of going oh by quickly. Oh, my God. I mean... <laughs> Another thing that we always end up doing is we seize on these extremely minor characters because we like their names. And so we ignore the people that are clearly the protagonists of the book. And we just focus on these people with weird names. So uh, Mrs. Yelverton had a big party at her estate and um, she had made plans to... <laughs> like She made... She made plans to uh, lay with three different men in the gatehouse or whatever. Elena, have pitting you read, them against each other. Have you read Ulysses? You're, you're in English. Does that happen in the book as you remember it? Like six times. Yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's a motif uh, in, the, in the, yeah. <laughs> I bet what you guys came up with made about as much sense well, as... Well, that's the thing, right? Yeah. It's, I, from what like, I understand, it's a stream of consciousness. Yeah, a lot of it. Style, yeah. yeah. And the first line and the last line, it doesn't give you any information. No. Uh, and the last line is 4,000 words long. Right, yes. right. Molly's, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the first line is stately Buck Mulligan came trippingly <laughs> down the stairwell, which actually is a pretty good place to start, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. Wow. Thank you. By the way, but, Elena Passarello. <laughs> and the last line is, yes, yes, yes I, I will, say, yes, yes, I yes, will. I will. <laughs> yes, 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 I will forever. Yes, yes, to love the love. Yeah, that's not exactly what it is, but it's just word spaghetti. Yeah. So you had yeah. to, you had an hour and a half to go from a guy coming down the stairwell to word spaghetti. Yeah. And then you had a list of the characters. Absolutely. Yeah. I hope that there was some recording of it in some lost high schooler in like, you know, like Peoria is like, didn't read the book and has a test on it tomorrow. Oh, and like, listen. That's the dream. That's the dream. Like, let me just watch this real quick. Alexa, find me an audio synopsis of Ulysses. Paul F. Tompkins, the original PFT. That was Paul F. Tompkins right here on Livewire. Uh, make sure you're on the lookout for the newest season of his really incredibly comedy improv podcast. It's called The Neighborhood Listen. And it returns to podcatchers near you this fall. Hey, special thanks this episode to Susan Bragdon, Portland, Oregon. Susan is part of the Livewire member community and is generously supporting the program with a donation each month, which we are very thankful for because it's how we're able to keep doing the show. So a big thanks to Susan for keeping Livewire going. You're listening to Livewire. I'm Luke Burbank. That's Elena Passarello right over there. Of course, each week, we like to ask the Livewire listeners a question. In honor of Paul F. Tompkins' podcast, The Neighborhood Listen, we asked, what is the most unhinged thing a neighbor has ever done? And as I mentioned at the top of the show, Elena, this was a very popular topic with our listeners. We received an avalanche of responses. You've been collecting them up. What are you seeing? Who doggy? <laughs> That's what I'm seeing. Um, so uh, let's start with this one from Esther. The most unhinged thing a neighbor has ever done to Esther. I asked my neighbor to get any mail or packages while I was away, and she rearranged my living room furniture and changed the light bulbs in my ceiling fixtures because she thought they were too bright. <laughs> Well, I mean, that's nosy, but it does sound nice. Honestly, that sounds like a favor. Depends on the rearrangement. Like maybe maybe it's got better flow. 
Sure. Maybe, I mean, lighting is a big thing. With the comedian Todd Glass, who was a, a guest on Livewire in the past, will go around his house adjusting all the light bulbs before he has a party up into actually taking out the light bulb in his refrigerator because he does not want that light to throw everything else off when people are opening the fridge. Wow. Okay. Maybe th- maybe this is the neighbor in question. <laughs> it's Todd Glass. <laughs> What's something else unhinged one of our listeners' neighbors did? Ooh, doggy again. This one from Allison. Our 80-year-old neighbor suffers from insomnia. She tried out Ambien and then finally decided that it wasn't for her when she climbed up a ladder onto the roof of our garage late one night. Wow. <laughs> 80 years old? Zonked out on Ambien, climbing a ladder. No, thank you. (laughs) Bad news. uh, You're dealing with some sleep disorder. Good news. You can climb onto a roof at 80? Yeah, well done. We should be so physically fit. (laughs) All right. Another unhinged thing that somebody's neighbor did. So Andy says, when I lived in an apartment, my neighbor used to constantly put My Little Pony stickers all over my front door. And every time I took them off, he'd put them back on. So I just let him win. (laughs) (laughs) Was your neighbor like a five-year-old girl? Like, (laughs) Yeah, that's just kind of, I think that is if you look up gaslighting Mm -hmm. in the dictionary, it's just somebody re-affixing the (laughs) My Little Pony stickers to your door. Uh, Okay, one more unhinged thing that one of our listeners' neighbors have done. Deb says, a mystery person left a mincemeat pie at my door, so my uncle fed it to his chickens and said, if they don't die, you could have eaten it. And the chickens lived, so I could have eaten it if I liked (laughs) mincemeat. That is, there's so much to unpack from that email. One, somebody put a brownie in my uh, mailbox at school and I totally ate it because I, you know, I always want a brownie. And then one of my colleagues was like, did you get that mysterious brownie thing delivered? And I was like, yeah, did you get one too? And she was like, yes. And I threw it right in the trash. And I was like, oh, <laughs> that was when you knew you and your colleague were cut from very different cloth. Yeah. And I was like, I guess I got to wait to see if I, I make it through. And I did. All right. Uh, Elena, thank you for tracking those responses. Thanks to everyone who sent in uh, an answer to our listener question. We've got another one for next week's show coming up a little bit later. In the meantime, our next guest uh, has been an award-winning poet for many years, but is now out with a memoir. It's titled How to Say Babylon. It's about her life growing up in Jamaica in the Rastafarian movement and also her attempts to escape from under the very literal patriarchy of her father as he descended into depression and disappointment over his own life. Publishers Weekly calls it a tour de force, and Kirkus Review says this book is more than catharsis. This is a memoir as liberation. This is Sophia Sinclair, who joined us on stage at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland to talk about her book. Take a listen. This book, first of all, was amazing. I was totally, I was totally riveted. Um, it was interesting. It starts. It's your memoir, but it starts in 1966 when Haile Selassie is visiting Jamaica. He's yes. the uh, king of Ethiopia at the time, and everyone comes out for it. Like at least every Rastafarian comes out for it. You weren't even born yet. Why do you start your memoir on this day? <laughs> um. Well, because Haile Selassie represents to the Rastafari movement so much 
that I, there was no way for me to tell my story and my connection to Rastafari, my father's connection to Rastafari, without beginning in this moment. Mm. Um, and this is three decades after the Rastafari movement began in the early 1930s. And it began with a street preacher in Jamaica who heard the speech of the Pan-Africanist abolitionist Marcus Garvey, and he said, look to Africa for the crowning of a black king, where he will be the herald of black liberation. And Haile Selassie had been coronated as the emperor in Ethiopia in the early 1930s. And so when Howell saw Haile Selassie, who was the only black leader in the world at the time. And Ethiopia was the only African nation that had never been colonized. Mm. So the movement of Rastafari really hardened around this man who became myth and mountain. It was founded in this aspiration of black liberation, black unity. And so when I wrote that beginning scene where he comes to Jamaica and there's like a hundred thousand Rastafari who come to meet him, I just couldn't pass up bringing that to life. Like, how often does that happen, that people come face to face with the person they believe is God? And so and he told them, he said, I'm not actually he said, God. He said, I am only a man. But to the Rastas, only God would deny his divinity. <laughs> That's a good point. So, you know... Um, but when he, when he finally stepped out of the plane, instead of stepping onto the red carpet that the prime minister had laid down, he stepped onto the muddy ground where the Rastas were. And that to them meant everything. Um, your father was only a toddler, I believe, at this time, 1966. But yes. of course, this impacts his life deeply, which impacts your life deeply and yes. is really the center of the book. Something that I will admit I was not familiar with until I read this was how strict the Rastafarian life could be, depending on how they embraced it, the way that your father embraced it. He didn't eat meat. He didn't smoke. He didn't drink. Yeah. Was that also the rules in for everyone else in your household growing up, your mother, your siblings, you? Yeah, I mean, that's the rule for every Rastafari. They adhere to what they call an ITIL diet, which is kind of like a vegan diet on steroids. So mm -hmm. growing up, yeah, so there was no meat, no fish, no eggs, no dairy, no salt, <laughs> no wow. sugar, wow. no, no MSG. So it was, you know, it was a very restrictive diet. And, you know, another part of being Rastafari is, of course, everyone knows the dreadlocks, right? But for the Rastafari, it's not a choice. For them, the dreadlocks are, and you know, that's like an absolute, it's a sacred marker mm. to the world to show your reverence, your purity, and your um, admiration for Jah, which is what, who they call Haile Selassie. One of the things, uh, jaw is obviously comes up in the book all the time. The yeah. patois mm -hmm. is so fun to read. I mean, obviously there are very intense scenes in the book, but I feel like I'm yeah. really listening in on a conversation between Rastafari. Mm -hmm. How did you choose how much of that to include and, and when to use it? Um, well, I just wanted to really maintain the authenticity of our language in Jamaica. A lot of this book is a love letter to Jamaica and um, our culture, our history. And so, you know, we have Jamaican Patois, which, you know, is our, is our vernacular. But 
For the Rastas, they also have their own language and their own way of speaking that's separate from Jamaican Patois. Um, and the Rastafari language is very much rooted in anti-colonial thought. It's, it's a lot of linguistic rebellion. The idea is to uproot anything to do with the English language, right? Um, and so, for example, for a Rasta man, he doesn't say understand, he say overstand. He doesn't say appreciate, he say appreciate love. Mm-hmm. Right. And so for me, I really wanted to make sure that the way that my father speaks and the way that Rasta brethren speak um, was captured mm-hmm. precisely in the book. You know, they also don't speak in the singular. They don't say me. They say I and I mm-hmm. or the I or I man. Because the Rastafari is a collective that jives always with the Rasta man. And so the language reflects that. Um, and that was important to me. Um, and, you know, my team, <laughs> my editors, you know, I made sure they knew you're not going to touch this. Wow. Okay. <laughs> We're not going to italicize anything. Right, right. I need you to overstand this. Overstand, You're not going to touch this. Overstand what I'm saying. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. There's no glossary, right? right? Uh-huh. This is the experience of you step into Jamaica, yeah. the real Jamaica, beyond the postcard idea of Jamaica. This is what the people speak like. This is what our lives are like. Let's talk about your mom a little bit. She yes. was, it sounds like, effectively an orphan in her teen years and went towards uh, Rastafarianism because of a kind of a countercultural streak that she had. But she also yeah. was sort of a genius. Like, she was teaching these classes to people and she was sharing poetry with you. Yeah. I mean, let's talk about her a little bit. I, I would love to talk about her. <laughs> uh, because, you know, I say all the time I actually wouldn't be here without my mom. She first had a love of poetry and literature when she was a young girl. And she would, you know, books weren't always available to her. You know, she lived by the seaside. And she would sort of go to the hotels after the tourists had left and threw their books away. And she would take those books and read them. And so, you know, her love of literature began even in a place where it wasn't accessible to her. Um, And as she had me and my siblings, she passed that love of literature to us. So she created her own after-school curriculum to teach me and my siblings outside of school. And she was the first person who handed me my first book of poems Mm. and said, Mm. poetry was always the thing that made my world seem wide and wild and warmer. And then she told me that was alliteration. And I was like, what is that? (laughs) What is that? Um, Something a lot of people might not also know about Rastafari culture is that it is a very repressively patriarchal one. So I grew up for a long time being told that a woman's highest virtue was her silence, her obedience, her pliance. And it was poetry that first gave me the space to nurture my voice and nurture myself and think about what I wanted to say if I could say it. So yeah, you know, 
Without my mom, I would not be a writer. I would not have the tools that I needed. And she loves it. She's like, I just can't believe I have my own personal poet. Because <laughs> <laughs> well, we should mention that you're a, a very um, a beloved and awarded poet in your own right before you started writing a memoir. I mean, that was what I think a lot of people knew from your work. So that must have been tremendously gratifying to your mother. Oh yeah, she loves it. Every time she's at a poetry reading of mine, she's either like mouthing the words <laughs> to the poems, Aww. or she's turning around to make sure everybody's paying attention. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking to Sophia Sinclair. Her new book is How to Say Babylon. It is a, a memoir. Um, now, the, the sort of story of your childhood it was very much affected by the story of your father and his yeah. his music. Mm-hmm. So he was. I looked up, by the way, his band Future Wind. Uh huh. There's video of it. You can buy a 45 of Future Wind. I don't know if he knows that. Yeah, I was looking at it last night. We're gonna have it's to like, tell him that. It's like forty dollars. There's like a 45 of this okay. band that your dad was in. I wonder who's getting those royalties. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, based on what I've read in the book, he would say, not him. Not him. And yeah. so your dad was a, kind of a musical star in Jamaica when he yes. was younger, yep. but then ended up in this world where he was playing music and playing Rastafarian music, but Bob Marley covers uh, at hotels and not as much things that at times felt nourishing to him. Is that an, is that an accurate description? Uh, I think that would be an accurate description. I think most people don't realize that reggae in Jamaica kind of lost its cultural significance on the island um, in the 80s mm-hmm. when dance hall overtook reggae as sort of the primary music and the primary mode of musical expression in Jamaica. So, What did your dad call the dance hall stuff? <laughs> He's like, he called it the damn booga booga noise. <laughs> I have to say, he has some pretty great ways of describing yes. things he doesn't like. Bald he heads. does. Ball head. Anyone yeah. who's not Rasta is a ball head? Every, yep. <laughs> yep. But that's, that's also Rasta vernacular, right? Okay. You know the Bob Marley song, Chase Those Crazy Ball Heads Out of Town, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, that's what Rasta the Rastafari call anybody who is not a Rastafari. They, there's a lot of terms for. For, you know, there's ball heads, there's heathens, the women are Jezebels, they're unclean, mm. you know, there's like butus, there's a lot of terms. As your dad's career ended up not being maybe what he had hoped it would be, yeah. it sounds like he just became more domineering, more violent, more threatening in, in certain instances. There are moments where I thought, okay, she's out of there. Yes. You know, you had these moments where, I mean, it just seemed like you've achieved escape velocity from this home environment. And then it's like I read like 10 more pages. It's like, and then I move back. And I'm always like, did you have a feeling in your, you know, late teenage, early 20s life that you might never escape that environment? Or did you always know that you were going to eventually end up getting to live your own life? I mean, I I was always hopeful. Um... I knew I wanted to study, even though my parents didn't always have the means to, like, pay for me to go to college. Um, My siblings and I always kind of knew that education was, like, our primary road if we were ever going to sort of break that cycle. Um, So I always had that hope. And I, I always think about that hope that 
keeps Jamaicans buoyant also in the book. I talk about this, like in Jamaica, you're kind of born feeling like you're living a secondhand life. Mm -hmm. um, particularly so many of the citizens live in poverty. Um, and you're supposed to like enjoy it, right? Mm. Um, but because we have that hope, we had a Jamaican prime minister in the 80s named Michael Manley. He ran um, on a slogan said, better must come. And it became part of like the Jamaican national character of like, even though things are bad, we're always thinking better must come. Mm -hmm. And so I always thought that, um, you know, I did what I could. Yeah. Well, it's a really incredible memoir. It's called How to Say Babylon. It's by Sophia Sinclair. Sophia, thank you so much for coming on LiveWire. Thank Live you Wire. for having me. <laughs> that was Sophia Sinclair right here on LiveWire. Her memoir is How to Say Babylon, and it's available right now. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. We have to take a quick break, but do not go anywhere because when we come back, you will hear some incredible music from Isabeau Bayau Walker here on LiveWire. Stay with us. LiveWire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal Tea this season, formerly known as Tea Chai Tay. Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest, and they make one-of-a-kind handcrafted tea blends like cinnamon churro chai and blueberry cream Earl Grey. Use the code LIVEWIRE, all lowercase, for 20% off at portaltea.co. Welcome back to LiveWire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. Okay, before we get to our musical guest, a little preview of next week's show. We are going to be talking to journalist and podcaster Kelsey McKinney about her very popular and very juicy podcast, Normal Gossip. The show is based on this kind of interesting idea, right, Elena, which is that if you hear gossip, even about a person that you don't know and you will never meet, it's still going to be fascinating. We're also going to talk to the poet Brenda Shaughnessy about her book. It's called Tanya. It's about women artists and mentors, but it's also sort of low-key an attempt for her to find her college roommate who was named Tanya. So if you're listening, Tanya, reach out. Uh, and we're going to hear some music also from Grammy Award winner Madison Cunningham. And, of course, we have a listener question we want to get an answer to next week. Elena, what are we asking the listeners? We want to know, what is some gossip that only you care about? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like this week's question about unhinged neighbors and gossip only you care about, those are very tightly connected potentially. So if you've got some gossip that you seem to be the target audience for and maybe the only person who cares about it, hit us up on uh, Twitter and Facebook. We're at Livewire Radio. In the meantime, our musical guest this week worked as a high school teacher for over a decade while she was making music, slowly amassing an impressive YouTube following. Then she moved away from teaching and became a member of Ila Bamba and also started working on her first EP. Portland Monthly calls her music an overthinker's dream, which means this will be great for our audience. This is Isabeau Vayau Walker, recorded at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon. Check it out. Mm. 
What's the name of this song that we're going to hear? We're just going to end on a happy note. It's called All My Friends Think I'm Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's actually not. <laughs> it's not. All right. This is Isabeau Vaya'o Walker here on Livewire.
That's Isabel Vialu Walker, right here on Live Wire, backed by A.L. Alves. That was Isabel Vialu Walker. Her full-length album, Body, is available now. And that's going to do it for this week's episode of Live Wire. A huge thanks to our guests, Paul F. Tompkins, Sophia Sinclair, and Isabel Vialu Walker. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. And our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko. Molly Pettit is our technical director. And our house sound is by D. Neil Blake. Trey Hester is our assistant editor. Our marketing and production manager is Karen Pan. Rosa Garcia is our operations associate. Jackie Ibarra is our production fellow. And Aunt Diaz is our intern. Our house band is Ethan Fox Tucker, Sam Tucker, A.L. Alves, and A. Walker Spring, who also composes our music. This episode was mixed by Molly Pettit and Trey Hester. Additional funding provided by the Oregon Arts Commission, a state agency funded by the state of Oregon and the National Endowment for the Arts. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. This week, we'd like to thank member Susan Bragdon of Portland, Oregon. For more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast, head on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole Livewire team. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, Reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time, because we love having this job. Uh, Thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast.